trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table Again and again Welcome to Grassroot Ohio Conversations with everyday people Working on important issues Here in Columbus and all around Ohio I'm Carolyn Harding And today I'm talking with Dr. Laura Bean MD A general pediatrician Practicing in the Cleveland area She is co-founder and executive director of Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights and is a leader of the nonpartisan grassroots coalition, Protect Choice Ohio. Dr. Bean is concerned that abortion restrictions will cause a medical crisis in Ohio and will disproportionately affect the most vulnerable populations, including her teenage patients and people of color. Dr. Bean and Protect Choice Ohio are working diligently toward protecting reproductive freedom via a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment for the November 2023 ballot. Welcome to Grassroot Ohio. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. According to the New York Times, most abortions are now banned in at least 13 states as laws restricting the procedure take effect following the Supreme Court's June 24 decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Georgia also bans abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy before many women know they are pregnant. In many states, including Ohio, the fight over abortion access is still taking place in courtrooms, where advocates have sued to block enforcement of laws that restrict the procedure. According to the Ohio Capital Journal, Governor Mike DeWine signed the law, SB 23, or the six-week abortion ban, in 2019, but it couldn't be enforced until the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Many Ohio affidavits after that describe how as soon as the decision overturning Roe was announced that Friday, work at Ohio clinics was thrown into chaos. Ohio law had allowed abortions until 20 weeks of pregnancy. Now, with only limited exceptions for the life and the health of the mother, no abortions were allowed after fetal cardiac activity could be detected by ultrasound. So Ohio's six-week ban was in effect for three months. Then in October, the Hamilton County Common Pleas judge placed the law, Ohio Senate Bill 23, on hold indefinitely through a preliminary injunction. And on December 16, the same county judge decision to block the enforcement of that law that largely bans abortion across Ohio will stand for now. So for a tenuous now, abortion is legal up to 20 weeks in Ohio, as I understand for now. Dr. Bain. What brought you into this fight to protect choice, reproductive freedom, and abortion for Ohioans? It's a great question. Um, So I'm a general pediatrician. You probably wouldn't think of a general pediatrician as being somebody, um, you know, out here, um, you know, battling this fight. But I, so basically the Monday after the Dobbs decision, I was in my clinic um, and it became very clear to me that morning um, that, you know, this was going to be a disaster. Um, And I knew that it was going to be bad before, but that morning it really was clear to me that this is a true crisis and um, and it was going to affect my patients, um, including children. And two examples of interactions I had with patients that morning. Um, So a mother of a 13-year-old girl um, called me to ask if we should put her daughter, who is not sexually active on birth control, because if she were raped and impregnated, she wouldn't potentially be able to get an abortion in the state. And obviously, that is a very difficult, horrible question to even comprehend. Um, But I... I just, I had never, I had never been asked anything like that before. I didn't know how to reply. And this was before the little girl who was raped and impregnated.
impregnated the 10-year-old girl had to go to Indiana to have an abortion, um, which I think it's important to note there were actually three girls ages 10 and 11 that same week who all were impregnated and had to go to Indiana to have abortions. So that was actually not an isolated incident. Um, and I, so that hadn't happened yet. And I just, I had this, I knew that this was going to be bad for young people, young girls. And so that happened. And then also I had a patient who um, was a 16-year-old African-American girl um, who was eight weeks pregnant. In the previous week, I'd been trying to help her, help her, um, empower her with resources and information so that she could make the decision that was right for her. And so she didn't know what she wanted to do yet. She was trying to figure that out. She had gone to preterm and she was waiting to see OBGYN um, because if she um, decided that she wanted to have an abortion, she wanted to make sure she was getting the health care that she needed. And and I thought that that was a really um, awesome approach that she had. And I just wanted to make sure to support her. But unfortunately, that Monday, I had to call her and say, you know what, I I'm so sorry, but um, if you are really seriously considering having an abortion, um, you need to go to preterm today because it might already be too late. And I just felt so sick to my stomach because I never had to provide medical advice before that went against what I actually thought was appropriate medical care. And I also um, knew that, you know, this, you know, here is a patient of mine who is, you know, a a 16 year old African American girl from, you know, a wonderful community, but a community that um, doesn't have um, the same financial resources that um, some of my other patients have who come from communities that are more wealthy. Um, And it was very clear to me that there are going to be those patients that can get the care that they need despite obstacles. And then there are going to be those who can't. And that is going to be um, very um, terrible for people who um, are already, um, you know, struggling. And so I just couldn't sit with that. So I and I don't mean to take too long, but those that was what motivated me to really take action. Um, and so I started by writing a letter that um, I um, ended up writing along with a few other doctors that we connected through social media. Um, that letter turned into a letter to our patients and that we ended up having um, over the course of four and a half days, over a thousand doctors um, come to us um, through this spread on social media asking to sign. And these were all physicians in the state of Ohio, um, men and women um, across specialties. And so we knew we were onto something and we needed to harness this energy um, from the medical community um, that didn't really know where to apply their focus. So we formed an organization called Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights. And pretty early on, we started learning about ballot initiatives. um, And that's kind of, that's sort of our origins. Wow. So what, so that incident was what propelled you to step up and organize the Physicians for Reproductive Rights. Yes. Um, On Sunday, January 22 was the 50th anniversary of the now reversed Roe v. Wade. So where are we in Ohio for folks seeking abortion and right now and for physicians? Because I know that um, Senate Bill 23 really penalized physicians. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, I think in Ohio, Thankfully, um, there are um, very smart attorneys out there, um, including Jesse Hill um, and her team, which represents a lot of the advocate groups, including the ACLU, who were able to um, argue um, in the um, lower courts that um, this um, ruling um, was, you know, unconstitutional, I think was their argument. And they, um, and so there's this temporary stay. So in Ohio right now, we're, we're operating under the pre-Dobbs rule. There is 
confusion, um, I think, among the people, which has become its own barrier in that, you know, a lot of people in Ohio don't realize that currently in Ohio, abortion is legal, at least for now. And so um, I actually spent a day with Dr. David Burkhans, who is a, um, he owns three of the eight abortion clinics in the whole state. Um, he sees a lot of patients and um, one of his patients offered to speak with me about her experience. And um, she had actually her abortion care ended up being delayed because she thought abortion was illegal in the state. So she was trying to get an abortion in Michigan. And then she had was having a hard time getting an abortion in Michigan because those clinics were overwrought with people who were all trying to get abortions from other states. And then she had an appointment. The appointment was canceled. And then eventually she made her way back to his clinic um, in Ohio. And it was such a, a confusing scenario for her um, that, that that is a problem. I think, you know, as far as the, you know, physicians in the state, I'm not an abortion provider, I'm a general pediatrician, but, you know, there's, there's just this kind of sense of dread that the temporary stay against the abortion ban is um, not going to last. Unfortunately, um, the forces against us are so powerful that that will likely go away. And so it's, anticipated that abortion will again become illegal um, after six weeks and maybe even worse if the personhood ban goes into effect, which um, would make abortion illegal at the moment of conception. Um, and so those that it's, we don't think that unfortunately we're going to be, be in the same situation we are right now for long and that abortion will become illegal in 2023. Um, so I think that the, everybody's a little on edge for a lot, for a lot of reasons, um, but it's, it's not a good feeling. Okay. I feel that way. I share that with you. And with the Supreme Court leak in May, several states got busy creating ballot initiatives to pass a constitutional amendment like Michigan. Others were fighting abortion ban measures like Kansas and have secured abortion rights in their states. Talk about the Protect Ohio Choice constitutional amendment that you are spearheading that is for this November, November 23. Let's talk about that. Yes. Yes. So we learned very early on that um, constitutional amendments are, um, see, they seem to be the best way to try to protect our rights to comprehensive reproductive medical care, including abortion in the state. Um, and we um, observed that this was happening in other states, in particular Michigan. Um, so I think, you know, other states and um, so Kansas, for example, there was this huge um, voter turnout. It was actually in opposition to an anti-choice amendment but that really got our attention that oh wow this there's power here there's or there's this sense of vote voting um need there's you know people came out in this surge to vote what for what they felt was right across the aisle so seeing that that voter energy and then observing what happened what they did in Michigan um where so in Michigan they have the same process very very similar process as to what's in Ohio and so not every state can do a citizen initiated constitutional amendment i believe it's either 17 or 19 states in the entire country that have that as an option and so in Michigan, you know, the people wrote um, an amendment that um, was presented to the attorney general, and then they got enough signatures collected to put that on the ballot that the people could then vote in support for. Um, and so in Ohio, we have been working to do the same thing since last summer. Um, our organization, Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, um, which is what we started out as, as a group of physicians, we uh, formed a ballot initiative political action committee last August, and we have been um working to build a team to lead this um, that um, includes multiple political strategists that have a lot of experience, decades of experience in of Ohio politics, including um, in ballot initiatives, um, fundraisers, 
lawyers were working with um, a top election attorneys and healthcare attorneys and um, building a field team. We have you know statewide field director and regional um, field directors, and we have this huge force that we've been um, creating to get this something that can be achieved. Um, so that's that's really, um, and now we're doing a lot of coalition building. We're meeting with people um, and trying to uh, spread the word that, you know, this, this process, this constitutional amendment process is really a pure form of grassroots democracy where, you know, we as the people are able to use our voice collectively to amend the constitution. And so and we need to all do that together. So that's what we're, we're kind of focusing on that whole process. And I'm, and I'm happy to talk about, you know, the amendment itself more if you have specific questions, but, you know, we've we've been working toward that, you know, that growing that grassroots swell for the last several months. Excellent. This is Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio, and I'm talking with Dr. Lauren Bean, and she is spearheading the Protect Choice Ohio ballot initiative to um, codify women's reproductive rights in the Ohio constitution. Is a language inspired or similar to Michigan's language? Does it codify Roe v. Wade or does it go beyond? And is the language completed? Great question. So um, we have been working on language since actually language was being worked on before I got into this process. Um, Going back to the spring when the Dobbs decision was leaked, there were four legislators, um, Senator Nikki Antonio, Representative Michelle Lepore-Hagan, Representative Jessica Miranda, and Representative Beth Liston, who is a physician. Um, They all brought language to the floor during a joint session um, that was based on the language that was being written in Michigan or that was being worked on in Michigan. Um, And that was to present that as a um, legislator initiated amendment, but that was clearly not going to go anywhere because of our highly gerrymandered and swayed state houses. Um, And so that, those conversations, I had the opportunity to enter and learned that, you know, this, this, that's when I really got in these conversations. So the language that we have been working to uh, finalize uh, was initially based off of the Michigan language. And then we had the opportunity to see, you know, that that language was successful in Michigan. Michigan, of course, is a little bit different than Ohio, but we share a lot of things in common. Um, and we also have been able to see, you know, how that, you know, how people responded to different aspects of that language in Ohio. You know, what were pitfalls? What were trigger triggering words? What was what was what were distractions? Um, how can we avoid um, making, you know, doing? How can we make this as successful as possible? So we basically took that language, um, what information was gathered from that language from polls, and then. Um, with our team of people, including physicians, top attorneys, and our our strategists made multiple iterations of that language um, that we thought best fit um, what would be successful in Ohio. Um, And that language is now being pulled um, to see how the Ohio voters might respond to it. And in particular, I think, you know, people will ask questions about, you know, well, limitations, what are the limitations? Because that's an important question. And for us, um, you know, we we want language that will, you know, declare that, um, you know, people have a fundamental right to um, have control over their reproductive freedom, and that that is not something that the government should um, be involved in up to a certain point. And so the point at which we feel like people should be able to you know, access abortion um, is um, the point at which the um, fetus is no longer or is at a point where it 
could survive um, if born um, without totally extraordinary measures. Um, and so, you know, I think that that some people will coin that as the concept of viability, but viability has, um, unfortunately, is a complicated term. It's a trigger word and it has legal definitions. Um, and it also doesn't really make sense medically. You know, um, what, what we know now as, you know, viability in a, a, a pregnancy that might not have a lot of medical complications is something that will change with time. And it's something that varies depending on where an infant is born. So if an infant is born in a tertiary center, you know, you might, there might be a reasonable, reasonable possibility that an infant at 22 weeks could survive. Whereas if an infant is born in a community hospital, you know, if an infant is born below 24 weeks, it's very, very unlike, unlikely, if not impossible for that infant to survive. So even currently, a number doesn't really make sense. Also, it changes with progress in science and neonatology. And then it also doesn't take into consideration medically complex pregnancies. So if a pregnancy, um, you know, if the fetus is not viable or has incredibly devastating malformations that make it so that, you know, if, if it could survive, it would be brief and um, possibly painful. That concept will not change based on what week you are at. So if somebody has a 20 week ultrasound and realizes that they're they're carrying a fetus that does not have a brain. You know, if that, you know, a day or two, you know, on legal, an illegal document, um, trying to, to define this moment of viability is senseless. And it adds a layer of guilt and emotional trauma to the, you know, the person carrying that pregnancy and their family that we would like to um, avoid. So that's, you know, that's sort of our, our medical um, and legal approach to language that um, we think, um, we hope will be successful. And we're, we're looking forward to getting our polling data to see, you know, what, what that shows. Cause, you know, again, we, what we want is to have people be able to have medical care and when we want it to be successful. Who are you polling? Who are we polling? Um, oh, so like what people or who is doing the polling? Both. Both. So, um, so Celinda Lake is our pollster. Um, Celinda Lake is a wonderful pollster. She has a lot of experience and her team is um, nationally um, renowned. And we are doing a poll of a representative population of Ohioans and looking at people who are expected to vote in 2023 and people who are expected to vote in 2024 and looking to see if there's any differences um, in like the the likely success of the language um, and different aspects of the language in these two different populations. Okay. So you just answered a bunch of my questions. Um, so this is nonpartisan. Yeah. So do you have support in your allies in nonpartisan groups? Yes. So we are a nonpartisan group. We, um, and we are very intentional about that. Um, we, cause this is a human rights issue, um, that unfortunately is heavily politicized and to the detriment of the issue. Um, and so I think what's important to note is that we, in our, um, our political strategists that we're working with, we are, we are working with five political strategists, um, one of whom is actually Republican, which I think is important because that person is helping us make sure that we are, you know, framing what we're doing in a way that is going to reach everybody um, because this is something that affects everybody. And then as far as, you know, partners, we are, so we are trying to, we want everyone <laughs> to work, work on this. So we have been like, I'm not kidding you. We have this incredibly long list and I, we have just been emailing um, our, our leadership. We're up till, you know, the wee hours of the night emailing every organization we can find that we think 
might be interested in participating and helping and, you know, learning. And even if we're not even sure they're interested, who cares? Because, you know, we'll let them decide if they're interested or not. Um, so we're, we are working to have as broad of a, a reach as possible, I think politically. And then also, you know, racially and culturally, we want to make sure that we're, in, we are including groups of people um, who are, that is a true representation of our state um, because, you know, we are, we are a few people who are doing the majority of work um, and, you know, we can reach the people that we, you know, typically see, but we want to make sure that we are, we are connecting with, you know, every community that we can, especially those communities that are going to be the most impacted if these rights go away. Now, November, 2023 is coming up pretty fast Mm -hmm. and a statewide ballot initiative requires thousands of signatures and there's a deadline where you have to get these signatures in. Can you tell us what's your what's requirement and when you have to get them in? Yeah. So it is that is true. So the deadline um is July 5th and we need to get um about 800,000 signatures um, is what we're aiming for. The minimum is actually 400,000. So um kind of taking a step back in Ohio, every state's different, but in Ohio, the number of signatures that you need in order to place language on the um, ballot in November um, is equal to 10% of the previous year's turnout for, or the previous gubernatorial elections turnout. And so based on November, 2022, for us, that equals 403,000. And then that number of total signatures has to come from 44 of the 88 counties. And there's a certain percentage of the their previous, I think it's 5% of their previous turnout or something. And so that is a lot. It is broad. It's a big project. And we are um, hoping to be able to be in the field collecting that mass of signatures um, by end of February, March um, at the latest. And that would give us more than the average number of days that have been needed in previous attempts to do successful um, ballot initiatives. And so, for example, we've done a lot of research into this and um, the average number of days that it takes to collect enough signatures to for one of these sorts of citizen-initiated amendments is about 110 to 120 days. And following our timeline, which we have like mapped out day by day, um, it will take, um, we have about 150 days. So we will have more days than is average, but it is definitely we're at the point where we can't waste time, right? We have to be moving forward every day and stay on target, stay on focus um, and make the most of every day. Are you relying on volunteers or are you paying your um, petitioners? We are going to do both. So um, we are meeting with signature collection firms um, and we are um, planning to hopefully get about uh, 30% of the signatures from volunteers. Um, In Michigan, they had about 900,000 signatures um, and a small portion of those were from volunteers um, and then a lot of it was paid. Um, So it's more expensive to have paid signatures um, and the volunteer signatures are are great and wonderful. Um, And so we're hoping they have a higher percentage of validity as well, get better signatures. So you're doing a combination. And so the funding is coming from where? That is a great question too. So we have been meeting with a lot of people regarding funding too. We've been having um, donor briefings. um, And so far, we have actually been getting a lot of funding from the business community. Um, So we are working with um, business leaders, um, including um, Nancy Crane and Christopher Celeste and Tawny Crane, um, sorry, Nancy Kramer. And 
this amazing group of business leaders um, have helped us form relationships with CEOs across the state. Um, and so we have been getting a lot of support and um, both politically um, and we're not politically, I guess is not quite the right just, um just, you know, just general feelings of support, but also financially from um, that area. And so we are, uh, and then we're also starting to um, reach out to, you know, national donors. Um, and if people want to it, donate individually, um, you know, every dollar is helpful and we are accepting donations on protectchoiceohio.com. And I should mention- your website. What's your website again? Protectchoiceohio.com. And people can sign up to be volunteers and help out there. Yes, that's correct. You can do everything there. You can sign up to be a volunteer, sign up for signature training sessions. You can um, donate. You can, um, and when you sign up for anything, you get added to our listserv, which we we send about one to two emails maximum per week to keep people in the loop. I'm very clear. We need to do this sooner than later because mm -hmm. I do believe the state legislature is going to take away our rights, and we don't, we can't afford another three months or or an, another any amount of time where well, that are vulnerable or anybody has doesn't have their right for bodily autonomy. So 2023, I'm all on board on that one. I know that there's um, there is a, a lot of other folks that are um, aiming for 2024. Is there any way that the two can help each other? Yes, definitely. Um, and so I'll echo that, you know, obviously where I agree with you, this needs to happen in 2023 um, for a lot of reasons, which I'm happy to talk about those reasons if that would be helpful. But um, yes, so I think the thing that's important to know is that the work that we're doing now, so we, I mean, I feel as a physician, it is my duty to do this sooner rather than later. Um, the the experiences that, you know, I had as a general pediatrician immediately after um, the Dobbs decision and then hearing these just heart-wrenching stories from people, uh, my colleagues in maternal fetal medicine and um, and the abortion clinics and just, I mean, just at all areas of medicine um, where over those 11 weeks, people were, um, had delays to care and suffered. Um, you know, if, if this goes any longer than, um, then it, you know, if there's anything I can do to make this a shorter duration of time, I have to do that. And so our work right now toward 2023, you know, yep, it still seems, okay, if anything, um, anything that we do toward 2023 will not expire, signatures won't expire, the money will stay safe in our political action committee account, and it will not go to anything else besides this um, measure. So all work towards 2023 can be redirected towards 2024 if it turns out 2023 is no longer feasible or the right year. So everything we're doing can lead to either way, um, but we feel a duty to do it toward 2023 now since we think that we can. All right. Thank you for stepping up. And taking action, I clearly believe that it's up to us. Thank you so much, Dr. Bean. Thank you so much. Really appreciate what you're doing. In addition to our Friday 5 p.m. broadcast on WGRN.org, Grassroot Ohio now airs on Sundays at 2 p.m. on WCRSFM.org and at 4 p.m. on WEJPLP in Wheeling, Moundsville, West Virginia. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us. 
You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back.